Jesus, Messiah, Son of God and Son of Man, born to save the world. He walked a road of suffering and pain. From his entrance to the city, to the table, and to the garden, and to the cross, the road he walked was filled with those who misunderstood and rejected him. What sort of king would serve his own subjects? What sort of God would allow himself to be mocked and beaten? What sort of victor would forgive the ones who crucified him? The answers we find lead us to a love deeper than any other, because the road to the cross didn't end at the cross. It continued to the grave, to the mountainside, and it continues as we carry the good news of the greatest love to the world, the love we first saw on the road to the cross. Good morning, guys. It's good to see your faces this morning. Seriously, thank you for coming to worship. I know perhaps it's a little bit of a risk, but it's also hopefully a big lift to be together and to worship together today and to learn together today. So thank you for being here and thank you for joining us online um, if you decided to stay home today. It is a pretty unique situation that we find ourselves facing. Um, I think this is one time I can say I'm so glad we're a small community so that we can still gather um, and see each other as we walk into these next few weeks um, or months. So we're excited for you guys joining us on Facebook Live, and we will plan to keep streaming gatherings um, for the foreseeable future as long as we need to. Um, so we'll let you guys know. We'll keep in communication with you guys whether we plan a gathering next week or not. Um, but we're just going to walk through this season together, and we are going to support each other, right? Like I said yesterday, social distancing, yes, physically, but maybe not so much emotionally or spiritually, right? In fact, let's not do that. Let's not distance emotionally and spiritually. Let's walk through all of this together. So I debated long and hard about whether I should just scrap my message for today and write a new one about viruses and things and peace and stillness and Sabbath and all of that. It was, it was percolating. But as I was praying through what we had already planned to say, I realized that what we had already planned to say is really, really important. And I think we're going to have plenty of time over the next few weeks and months to talk about stillness and peace and all of those things. But today we're going to maybe put down our fear and concern and whatever we feel about the virus situation that's going on in our world. And we're going to turn our eyes to Jesus today. Because I think no matter what unrest we have going on in our lives, the right answer is always to first turn our eyes to Jesus. And I think that when we do, we're going to be equipped with some more of that peace and some more of that stillness and some more of that strength and courage to face whatever there is to face. And we are really excited that our kids are joining us today. So kiddos, if you have your clipboards, we are going to have some things for you guys to follow along with. And this is a really important conversation, this Road to the Cross conversation. It's really, really important. And I want to, before we get into it today, I want us to pause to think about it for a minute because I feel like we could really miss it. We could really get kind of numbed out by this story, the Easter story, because we've heard it lots and lots and lots of times before. 
And if we don't pause right now for a moment to remember why we're doing it, then the next few weeks of doing it will feel like going through the motions. And I don't want to be a part of a faith that goes through the motions. I don't think you guys want to be a part of a faith that goes through the motions. So let's think for a moment about why we're having this conversation to begin with. Because it's not just about the right imagery to have on social media or the right expectations of what a church should talk about in the weeks leading up to Easter. It's not about that. It's about the most important thing we can do in our life of faith. The most important thing that we can do in our life of faith is look to Jesus. Look to Jesus. I'm going to say that again because it can be a statement that kind of can just pass over us and not affect us. Or it can be a statement that challenges us and changes us. The most important thing we can do in our life of faith is look to Jesus. Now, you might be thinking, that doesn't sound true. Like, I'm pretty sure that wasn't the greatest commandment. Look at me, right? That wasn't it. So why would that be the most important thing we can do? Because I thought the most important thing we were going to do would be loving, right? Right? Love our God, love our neighbor. Don't, maybe, maybe she means look like Jesus, not look to him, right? Maybe looking like Jesus could be more important than looking to him. But let's not miss this today. Let's not miss it today. Or else we're going through the motions, guys, Okay? If we're going to love the Lord our God with all our heart and all our soul and all our strength, if we're going to experience any sort of transformation, if we're going to be able to be the hands and feet of Jesus in this world who show his love to people, if we're going to do the kingdom work of restoring shalom, then it has to start with looking to Jesus first. Because only when we really see him for who he is, can we really experience any transformation in ourselves? And if we don't experience the transformation in ourselves, then we can't look like him, right? We can't display the love that we're called to display. So looking to Jesus, that's something we do. That's a choice that we make to look at him, to engage with him, to commune with him. That's a choice that we make. But looking like Jesus, that's something he does. That's something he does in us. That's something that the Spirit of God transforms us to become. So that's the most important thing in our life of faith, is looking to him. And so that's what this series is going to be about. And the idea for this series came to me last year. We were preparing for Easter, and my brother sent me a link of my grandmother um, telling Bible stories. Now, when I was a little girl, my grandma was the best Bible storyteller I had ever known. And every time my brother and I were with her, we would always beg her, tell me a Bible story, tell me a Bible story, because she always had so many, and they were so intricate, and they were so interesting. And so we would always be asking her to tell us a Bible story. Well, my brother found a recording of my grandma telling me a Bible story when I was five, and it was the story of the crucifixion. And as I was listening to her voice tell the story, I began to remember how much those stories impacted me. Not necessarily even because of the story itself, but because of the person telling it. Because when my grandma told me about Jesus, she couldn't even say his name without a depth of reverence and awe and honor and love, like bursting out of her. 
It was like she was telling me about her friend. It was like she was telling me about someone that she knew. It was like that she had witnessed these stories. She could have been the woman that touched his garment. She could have been the leper that was healed. And in some ways she was because she had a lot of amazing experiences with Jesus and healing, and those are stories for another day. But in some ways, that love came from this Bible that she read for years and years and years. She lived to be 101, and she still told 102, and she still told my kids Bible stories before she went on to be with the Lord. But the years and years of reading these stories, of engaging these stories of Jesus, she fell in love with him in a way that I can only hope one day I will sound the same when I say his name every time. There was something about her that was so present to him, that had such a real relationship with him, that when she told these stories, they changed people, right? And so my prayer is that one day that will be me, one day that will be us, that as we look at these stories again and again, especially the stories of Jesus, that they don't just become going through the motions, that they don't just become listing off the narrative, but that they transform us, that we fall in love with this person of Christ, this God who became flesh and dwelt among us to redeem us, to transform us, to save us, I pray that we see him, that we fall in love with him, and that he transforms us. So that is the point of this series for the next few weeks, to look at Jesus. Not just the plot points, but really who he was, especially who he was on this very last week of his life. And maybe it's going to be more timely than we think. So many of us could probably tell the Easter story from memory, right? At least the high points. Jesus comes into Jerusalem on the donkey, and everyone has the palm branches, and they're worshiping him. Then he goes, and he overthrows the tables at the temple, and then they go to the upper room, and they have the Last Supper, and he washes the disciples' feet, and he tells Judas that he's going to betray him, and he tells Peter that he's going to deny him. Then he goes to the garden, and he prays, and the soldiers come, and they arrest him. Then Peter cuts off the soldier's ear, then Jesus puts the ear back on. Then he goes to Caiaphas, and then he goes to Pilate, and Pilate doesn't want to convict him, so he washes his hands of him. Good job, Pilate. He was practicing it way back in the day. Washes his hands of him, sends him to the people. He wants to release Barabbas, but they don't want to release Barabbas, so they convict Jesus. Then they, then they beat him, and they flog him with the whips, and they put a crown of thorns on his head, and he has to carry the cross up to Golgotha, and then they put him between two thieves, and then they play games for his clothes, and then they, they torture him with wine, sour wine instead of water, and then they plunge a spear in his side, and then he forgives the thief, on his side, and then he says it is finished, and then he dies, and then the, the, the skies light up, and then they take him down, they put him in the grave, and three days later, they go back to the grave, and the stones roll away, and he's alive, right? Hooray! We know the Easter story. Those are the high points. Thank you, thank you. We could probably all write a decent book report about the plot points of the Easter story, right? But I don't think anything I just said really changes anybody, at least not if we say it like that, <laughs> Right? So what does change us? What does change us? Maybe it's not so much the plot points, although those are important, but maybe it's the way that Jesus engaged people in the story. So that's what we're going to look at. And we're going to learn what we can from him in the last week of his life. And then we're going to find ourselves in the story 
Because there may be times that we can really identify with what was going on in the people around him, right? There may be times when we've rejected him or betrayed him or not seen him for who he was, right? There might be times when we've fallen asleep on our watch. And then we're going to hear his invitation, his invitation to join him in the work that he came to do. And the reason why we tell this story, because he didn't just come to do the work himself, he came to invite us to be a part of it with him. That was the whole point, right? Everything else in our life of faith flows from looking to Jesus. So that's what we're going to do today. And we're going to look at two pieces of the story. We're going to look at his entrance to Jerusalem, and then we're going to look at the Last Supper. So I'm going to read this story about the entrance to Jerusalem from two different um, Gospels, and then we're going to make a few observations. So let's look at Luke 19. After telling this story, Jesus went on towards Jerusalem, walking ahead of his disciples. As he came to the towns of Bethpage and Bethany on the Mount of Olives, he sent two disciples ahead. Go into that village over there, he told them. As you enter it, you will see a young donkey tied there that no one has ever ridden. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks, why are you untying that colt? Just say, the Lord needs it. So they went and found the colt just as Jesus had said. And sure enough, as they were untying it, the owners asked them, why are you untying that colt? And the disciples simply replied, the Lord needs it. So they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their garments over it for him to ride on. As he rode along, the crowds spread out their garments on the road ahead of him. When he reached the place where the road started down the Mount of Olives, all his followers began to shout and sing as they walked along, praising God for all the wonderful miracles they had seen. Blessings on the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in highest heaven. But some Pharisees among the crowd said, Teacher, rebuke your followers for saying things like that. He replied, If they kept quiet, the stones along the road would burst into cheers. But as he came closer to Jerusalem and saw the city ahead, he began to weep. How I wish today that you of all people would understand the way to peace. But now it is too late, and peace is hidden from your eyes. Before long, your enemies will build ramparts against your walls and encircle you and close in on you from every side. They will crush you into the ground and your children with you. Your enemies will not leave a single stone in place because you did not recognize it when God visited you. Now that's the story as Luke tells it. Let's look now quickly at the story as John tells it. The next day, a great crowd that had come for the festival heard that Jesus was on his way to Jerusalem. They took palm branches and went out to meet him, shouting, Hosanna. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the King of Israel. Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it, as it is written. Do not be afraid, daughter Zion. See, your king is coming, seated on a donkey's colt. At first, his disciples did not understand all this. Only after Jesus was glorified did they realize that these things had been written about him and that these things had been done to him. Now the crowd that was with him when he called Lazarus from the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to spread the word. Many people, because they had heard that he had performed this sign, went out to meet him. So the Pharisees said to one another, See, 
This is getting us nowhere. Look how the whole world has gone after him. Now, this is just a couple ways that people tell the story of Jesus' entrance to Jerusalem. And as you've heard it a couple times this morning, maybe you've picked up something you hadn't heard before or didn't remember. We're going to make a few observations about it today. And the first one is about the trust. Jesus was trusted. Jesus was trusted by his disciples. That's kind of a weird story when you think about it. Maybe you've heard it so many times that you don't really think about it, but basically Jesus always walks everywhere. Like he doesn't ride donkeys around. But he tells a couple of his disciples, go on into this town. You're going to find a donkey tied up. You're going to take the donkey and you're going to bring it to me. And if somebody asks you, just tell them that the Lord needs it. Like, that's a little bit weird. Why would they just go stealing a donkey? Why would he do this? And they had no idea why. Remember, we are told again and again in the scriptures that his disciples honestly had no idea who he was. He told them over and over. He hinted at it a lot of times. And he told them very plainly in this last week of his life, But they did not really get it until after he died. They really didn't get it. They really thought he was just there to overthrow the government in some way. That's what they thought. And so they did not understand. But the thing is, they did it. They didn't question it. They didn't question this weird request of Jesus. They just absolutely did it. They went, they took that donkey, they told the owner the Lord needs it, and they went on their way. That is some trust that Jesus has built with his disciples, right? Secondly, Jesus had started a movement at this point. A lot of times we just think of Jesus as this like wandering rabbi out in the fields talking to small groups of people. Yes, he had the 5,000 like a couple times, but most of the time we kind of think of him as like kind of obscure. But at this point, at this point in the story, he had started a movement. He had started a movement. Apparently, ever since he had raised Lazarus from the dead, people were really taking him seriously, right? Did you hear that in there? And so they, he had a legitimate entourage. Like, he was not just walking around with a ragtag group of fishermen. People were worshiping this guy. People knew this man was a healer. This man raised people from the dead. This movement was happening, right? Think about the disciples for a minute. How must they be feeling right now? Because, again... They did not know that he had come to die. They thought he was there to overthrow the Roman government and bring in a new era for the Jews. That's why they thought he was there. And so they were probably thinking at this moment, at this triumphant entry into the city, like, this is it. It is happening, people. We have made it. They're worshiping him. We're going into Jerusalem. Look at all the crowds following us. The movement is happening. I kind of picture it like Aladdin, like Aladdin's entrance to the city when he first comes in into Agrabah and Abu gets changed into the big elephant and they have like the big parade down the streets of Agrabah. That's kind of how I'm picturing this, okay? And these disciples are pretty excited. They're like been changed into Abu and the paparazzi are taking pictures, right? This is a really, really big deal. And they have no idea what's really going on. They really think that Jesus is like Aladdin coming in to overthrow everything, right? They didn't understand it until after he died. Can you imagine how Jesus must have felt in the midst of that? Like he did this thing. This was the prophecy to ride this donkey and to come into Jerusalem in this way. But can you imagine how hard it must have been for him to see all of them worshiping him, but for him to know they really still didn't get it. They really still didn't get it. 
they didn't, they didn't know what he was on his way into that city to do. But he chose, nevertheless, to become the catalyst for his own sacrifice. He was the reason that he got himself arrested. Like, this grand display was the last straw. These Pharisees, they're on the side. They're telling him, like, don't let people say that about you. And Jesus was like, well, if they don't, the rocks are going to start cheering for me, which is pretty offensive for a lot of reasons, which we don't have time to go into today. But he was the reason that they went ahead from their thinking and plotting to actual action. This was a planned event to make these people mad enough to want to kill him. And if that wasn't enough, then he went straight to the temple and flipped the tables. And that's a whole other story we don't have time for today. But he was clearly becoming the catalyst for his own execution. He was the catalyst for this entire thing. That was his choice. That was, imagine just that sacrifice in and of itself. He had to be the one to get it into motion, to make them mad enough to do this to him. But what do we see Jesus doing in this story? What does he do? Anybody remember? What does it say Jesus does? Weeps. He weeps. That's what Jesus does. He laments for the pain that is going to befall these people, not the pain that's going to befall him, but the pain that is coming for this whole city that is going to fall. It is going to fall. He breaks because he knows that the love and the peace and the redemption and the restoration that he's literally about to die to bring these people isn't going to come to its full fruition in their lifetime. And they're going to suffer. And he, instead of being distracted with all of his own pain that he's going to endure, he weeps for them. He weeps for them. He looks to the least and the last and the lost, and he weeps out of compassion, out of love, right? That's our Jesus. That's our Jesus. And I feel like if he were with us today, he would weep. He would weep for our world. Not that we're going through some crisis that we're not going to come back from. We're going to. But the least and the last and the lost are going to suffer. And Jesus would see it and weep over it. That's our Jesus. That's who lives in us. Now let's look at the Last Supper. Now the Bible doesn't actually call it the Last Supper. Uh, the church invented that title, but it was the final meal that Jesus and his disciples had together. And it wasn't just any meal. This was the feast of the Passover. Like, the significance of this happening on this night can't really be overstated. It is a very beautiful and poetic full circle thing, right? Because the Passover is when the Jewish people got, celebrated God's active intervention to save them from slavery, right? And in this night, Jesus himself is becoming the Passover lamb for the whole world, right? So before I get into the text, I got to share a funny story with you guys. <laughs> this is a very funny story. I hope I can do it justice. So a few weeks, no, last week, I don't know, a couple weeks ago, a few of us from Element went to the Exponential Conference, which is a giant conference of church planters. It was like 5,000 people there, and we went to this conference, and it was, it was so beautiful, you guys. It was about unity in the church, and it was about coming together 
and learning from each other and working with each other instead of isolating ourselves. And it was so, so, so beautiful. And I think I cried during every single worship service and every single meeting because I was so moved and it was so beautiful and it was wonderful. So the last, I think it was the last gathering, there were 5,000 people in the room and they decided that they were going to take communion together which is a big undertaking with 5,000 people, but also very beautiful. Like, we're talking about unity in the church, of course. Well, the communion, that's so beautiful. Now, in the back of my mind, I'm thinking, like, I hope they're doing this in a sanitary way. But they did, and that was good. So 5,000 people about to take communion. So the main speaker of the conference gets up onto the stage with four other speakers. And all the communion has been passed out. It took, like, two songs to pass out all the communion to all the people. Finally, we're ready. And he gets up there, and he's like, <laughs> okay, we're going to do something really beautiful today. We're going to do a reading. So every time you see the word all on the screen, say it, say it with us. And that's all he said. <laughs> so they put up this scripture on the screen. And it was, I think it was the um, first Corinthians about the different gifts of the church. And he was going to read the whole chapter. So from what he said, it sounded like every time just the word all was in the scripture, we were supposed to say all, right? So we did, like the whole room of 5,000 people, every time he got to the word all, they would say it. But the problem was that's not what he meant. What he meant was later on, there was going to be a slide that said all, and then we all read that together, right? So we start doing this, and... Like, you can't time 5,000 people to say one word at the same time. So it's like echoing around the room. Oh, 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 oh. And then everyone starts laughing because it was funny. Like, we're, we were really supposed to be serious about this. It was a beautiful moment. Like, it was the culmination of the whole conference. But we, I mean, I was laughing. Hannah was laughing. Benjamin didn't think it was funny that we were laughing. <laughs> But we had to because it was funny. So anyways, we're all saying all just randomly smattered about. And nobody did anything. They read this whole thing and nobody stopped it. All four readers just went with it. Didn't pause to like all, like bring everybody in. Nope, they just read it. Just, it was amazing. So, and then <laughs> we finally got to the part where it was, we were supposed to say all and we all saw it. And then everyone really laughed because like half the people hadn't gotten it yet. And then they got it. Anyways, it just made me feel really validated about the squawkward moments we have around here. Because I'm like, these are like highly paid professional people and they totally mess this up. So I feel much better about my life. Um, it was really funny. <laughs> anyway, that has nothing to do with my story except to say that we're going to take communion together today. Um, and <laughs> hopefully it won't be that haphazard. Um, but even though it was funny, like almost the laughter was a uniting thing too. Um, and the thing is, like, communion is the one thing that unites almost every church. Almost every church participates in this particular sacrament, including the Catholics, including um, most of the Protestant denominations. Almost every church takes part of this act because it is the one thing, the one tangible thing that reminds us, really, of what Jesus did, okay? It's a very unifying thing. And so we're going to practice it today. Um, but first, we're going to read the story. From Luke first. Now the festival of unleavened bread arrived when the Passover lamb is sacrificed. Jesus sent Peter and John ahead and said, Go and prepare the Passover meal so we can eat it together. Where do you want us to prepare it? They asked him. 
He replied, as soon as you enter Jerusalem, a man carrying a pitcher of water will meet you. Follow him. At the house he enters, say to the owner, the teacher asked, where is the guest room where I can eat the Passover meal with my disciples? He will take you upstairs to a large room that is already set up. That is where you should prepare our meal. Again, Jesus is just setting them off on this wild goose chase to find some guy carrying a pitcher of water. They do it, right? They went off to the city and found everything just as Jesus had said, and they prepared the Passover meal there. When the time came, Jesus and the apostles sat down together at the table. Jesus said, I have been very eager to eat this Passover meal with you before my suffering begins. For I tell you now that I won't eat this meal again until its meaning is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. Then he took a cup of wine and gave thanks to God for it. He said, take this and share it among yourselves, for I will not drink wine again until the kingdom of God has come. He took some bread and gave thanks to God for it. Then he broke it in pieces and gave it to the disciples, saying, this is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. After supper, he took another cup of wine and said, this cup is the new covenant between God and his people an agreement confirmed with my blood, which is poured out as a sacrifice for you. That's how Luke tells it. Now we're going to look at how John tells it. It was just before the Passover festival. Jesus knew that the hour had come for him to leave this world and go to the Father. Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. The evening meal was in progress, and the devil had already prompted Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, to betray Jesus. Jesus knew that the Father had put all things under his power and that he had come from God and was returning to God. So he got up from the meal, took off his outer clothing, and wrapped a towel around his waist. After that, he poured water into a basin and began to wash his disciples' feet, drying them with the towel that was wrapped around him. He came to Simon Peter, who said to him, Lord, are you going to wash my feet? Jesus replied, You do not realize now what I am doing, but later you will understand. No, said Peter, you shall never wash my feet. Jesus answered, unless I wash you, you have no part with me. Then Lord, Simon Peter replied, not just my feet, but my hands and my head as well. Jesus answered, those who have had a bath need only to wash their feet. Their whole body is clean and you are clean though not every one of you. For he knew who was going to betray him, and that's why he said not everyone was clean. When he had finished washing their feet, he put on his clothes and returned to his place. Do you understand what I have done for you? He asked them. You call me teacher and Lord, and rightly so, for that is what I am. Now that I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also should wash one another's feet. I have set you as an example that you should do as I have done for you. Very truly, I tell you, no servant is greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. Now that you know these things, you will be blessed if you do them. So let's look at some observations from the Last Supper. The first one, I like to call it radical hospitality. Not just any hospitality, but radical hospitality. Can you imagine this sort of hospitality? Like, Jesus was about to go to his death, right? 
he was going to endure some of the most gruesome torture that humans have ever created. And he was going to be rejected or betrayed by every person in this room. Nobody stuck with him at the end. They all ran away. He was going to be rejected or betrayed by these people. He was going to be tortured. He was going to be killed. But what did he do? He opened up his table and he invited them to share a meal with him. And this sort of hospitality is not necessarily about food. This is about relationship. It's about communion. That's why we call this practice communion, because it's about intimacy. It's about joining each other in a, in a radical way, not just in a way of sharing bread around a table, but communion, intimacy, and relationship. That's the sort of hospitality we're called to here at Element, and I think we do a pretty good job of it, guys. I think we do it genuinely and deeply and powerfully, and I think when we say hospitality, we know that that really means relationship, right? And that's the kind of hospitality that Jesus displayed even right before his death, right? Secondly, he was filled with humility, right? What, what, what kind of a teacher does this? I hate feet. You guys know that I hate feet, right? So maybe the scene is even more like powerful to me because I think it's a really gross thing to do. But it was a really gross thing at that time. People's feet were nasty. They were walking on the streets. They were dirty. They were in all kinds of funk. And feet were gross, more gross. And Jesus does this, right? And he does it not only to be a humble servant, but to teach them. Even in his last moments, even in his last days, he's doing this teaching. And in the book of John, like we've said, from this story onward, there's like six more chapters of Jesus just talking, of Jesus just sharing every last morsel of truth he can share with them that they can absorb so that they can try and understand who he really is and what he really came for and what we're really called to, right? But this is how he starts it with this foot washing to say, I will love you in this humble way. I will show you my favor and I will also teach you to do the same. The last thing that I want to bring out of this, and there could be a lot more, but the last thing that really sticks with me more than anything from this story is the first line in the, in the John passage where it says he loved them to the end. In the message version, it says, having loved his dear companions, he continued to love right to the end right to the end. I think there's something godly. I know there's something godly about that sort of love. The love that just keeps on, right? It's the sort of love that I pray will stay alive in me, not a love that roller coasters, right? Not a love that explodes at the beginning and then fades, slowly dies, but a love that goes to the end. Brenna, my daughter, has gotten into acrostics lately. They're a really big deal. She has this whole box at home called Brenna's Acrostic Box. She's got all kinds of poetry in there that are built from acrostics, right? And a day not too long ago, she decided to do my name. And while, you know, I tried to play it cool, like, it kind of really mattered to me what she put on my name because she's my daughter and, it, like, it mattered, right? And she started reading it to me, 
And for the E in melody, she put everlasting love. And to be honest with you guys, I don't even remember the other letters because that one just like floored me. It just stopped me that she would say that about me, but more like it just stopped me to say like, God, let, let that be true. Like, let that be true of me because I know that it's true of you. I know that it's true of you, right? I, I pray that it'll be true of me. Like, I pray that I will have the fortitude to love right to the end, right? Through sickness and sin and pain and suffering and betrayal, through misunderstanding and catastrophe and victory, through moving across the country or through unpredictable circumstances or through my own darkest days, I pray that I will love right to the end. I want this to be true of me, but I know this was true of Jesus. I know it was true of Jesus, right? Can we stop for a moment if we get nothing else from today and think on that? A love that loves right to the end. And when it says that, it doesn't mean right to the end of this meal. It means right to the end of the nails and the thorns and the spear and the jeering and the mocking and the betrayal. Right to the end. Right to the end. That's how he loves us. So we're going to pass out communion today, and we're going to do it a little bit differently. And we are going to, we have individual servings of communion rather than our usual bread and table style, just to minimize any contact. So once you receive the cup and the wafer, go ahead and prepare it, but don't take it yet, because we're all going to take it together at once. And if you're watching at home and you would like to take communion with us, grab some bread, grab some juice, and we'll take it all together in just a minute. But as we're passing it out, will, will we think, guys, for a minute? Will we think about a love that invites us to the table with radical hospitality no matter where we are? Whether we're the doubters or the betrayers or the disciples, no matter who we are, we're invited to the table, just as you are, wherever you are. And then will you think about a love that bends the knee to you, to serve you, to humble itself before you, a love that doesn't look away from your gross parts or your hidden parts, but a love that makes them clean again, a love that makes them new again, a love that embraces those things about you. Will you think? Of that kind of love? And will you think of a love that loves right to the end? A love that is everlasting. A love that keeps on, that forgives every time, that sees the best in you every time, that invites you to become the beautiful creation that you were made to be every single time. A love that will never leave you or forsake you. The love that will defend you and heal you and redeem you and restore you and pay the price for your brokenness right to the end, right to the end. A love that won't stop loving you until you and the whole world are whole again. That's the love that we celebrate when we take this communion together. That's the love that lives in you. So my prayer as we take this today is that we see him today. 
not in a wafer or a juice, but in the story and in the hearts of those around us and in the spirit within us, may we see him. May we see the love that loves right to the end. So I'm going to read. I might need some help. I'm going to read Jesus' words for us, and then we're going to take these together. He took some bread and gave thanks to God for it. Then he broke it in pieces and gave it to the disciples, saying, This is my body which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Let's receive the body together. After supper, he took another cup of wine and said, this cup is the new covenant between God and his people, an agreement confirmed with my blood, which is poured out as a sacrifice for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Let's receive the blood together. The band can come up. We're going to sing one last song together today. Last year we wrote some readings for our Good Friday service. And we want to share them with you uh, this year again as part of this whole series. Um, as we travel the road to the cross. So Pastor Benjamin wrote this one. So I'm just going to ask you to listen, either look at the words on the screen or close your eyes and let the words sink into your soul for a moment and allow Jesus to draw your heart towards him. Allow Jesus to draw your eyes to him and see him today. You washed the grime from their feet. Creator kneeling before creature. You prepared a table to share with the doubters and the deniers, the prideful and the pitiful, the simple and the sinful, your followers. You let their doubts and denials, their pride, their delusion, their sin break your heart. And then to break everything. And as you break and as the tears fall, the look of grace in your watery eyes pierces my soul, planting the truest seed of audacious faith. And I choose to believe that on that night, you wept for me too. Let's pray. God, we thank you for this chance to turn our eyes to you today to remember the way that you lived and that you loved and that you taught. And I pray that we won't just glaze over this, but that we will stop and that we will realize how much it matters that you love us right to the end. That that truth will change us, not just in this moment or this day, but forever. That it will change the people around us, that it will change the way we see the world, that will change the way we choose to hope. 
God, we know that your spirit is in us and with us, before us, behind us, above us, below us, beside us, within us. And I pray that you will lead us through the days and weeks ahead, through our own crazy story of our own crazy lives and through this situation that's affecting our world, God.